Good to see all of you, and uh, we're going to have a wonderful time in the Word tonight, and, and we're going to be tonight in 2 Kings chapter 23. Uh, again, there's still uh, some wonderful refreshments. Go help yourself and, uh, and join us. Uh, I want to report tonight that, uh, that, that our, our son Mark and his wife Victoria, they had their little baby boy, and uh, so we're excited about that. I think he weighed in at like seven pounds, uh, what was it, 12, 14 ounces. Thank you very much. Seven pounds, 14 ounces, 20 inches long. And his name is Ivor. It's a Viking name, and it means archer. And Ivor Allen Simsarot. My middle name is Allen. Mark's middle name is Allen. So his son's middle name is Allen. So we're, but we're just excited to add little Ivor to the flock. It's a growing flock, and he's number 12. And, and the Lord willing, number 13 will be with us sometime around August. Uh, Morgan, Morgan is, is, is going to deliver. So uh, we're, we're very thankful to the Lord. You know, we, you know, this is one of the common graces that God has given to all men all women on the earth. That is that everyone can experience uh, marriage. Everyone can experience family, having children. God gives us common grace. Now, common grace is not the same as saving grace. Just because you have common grace and you have family and you have marriage and all those wonderful things. Thank you so much, Steve. Uh, the reality is uh, that doesn't save you. You have to have saving grace. So some people are content with common grace, and sometimes it's because they don't know there's a saving grace, or they think they already have saving grace and they don't, which means that we have our job cut out for us, don't we? As true believers, of followers of Jesus Christ who have been saved taken out of darkness, brought into His marvelous light. Uh, we have a responsibility to share the gospel, that, that people could move from simply a common grace given to all to a very specific saving grace that God grants to those who cry out to Him and repent of sin. So uh, I'm thankful even for the common grace to have a wife, to have children, to have grandchildren, and hopefully one day, the Lord willing, great-grandchildren. And, uh, and so, uh, only by God's grace do we get those things, right? Amen. Never take for granted. Never take for granted. Okay. <clears throat> well, tonight we are going to start up here. Let me take one little sip. Mm. Just what I needed, a little bit of coffee to get me going here. Woo! Before we start, let's start with prayer. And tonight, I want us to, to lift up. Uh, Brad Cotier, one of our members. Brad is has been facing uh, uh, sickness now for for several years, uh, different types of things that he's had to go through, and it really is taking its toll. And uh, he knows uh, the doctors have shared with him that it, you know his days are numbered unless the Lord intervenes. And we've always prayed for his healing, but up to this point, that has not uh, happened in the way that we've prayed. Uh, Healing will occur for Brad, one way or the other. It will happen. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. 
That is a promise from God. But let's keep Brad in prayer. Um, he seems to be uh, entering more of a, uh, another stage of, of preparation to go be with Jesus. And he's still cognizant, still able to talk and move around. And we, he was in church last Sunday. But uh, he was here Sunday night. Wonderful. But uh, he's had a tough first part of the week. So uh, let's keep him in prayer, okay? Father, there are many requests that we could lift up before you this evening as we come into this worship service, and uh, we could focus on that first and foremost, but really, we, prayer is an act of worship, and worship is always about you. And so the first thing that we want to focus upon in our prayer is the greatness, the splendor, the majesty, the strength the kindness, the comfort of our God. Lord, you have provided for us grace and you've provided for us mercy. Grace is getting more than what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we really deserve. And so, Father, tonight we come with those thoughts in mind. It just kind of gives us clarity. It's like a smelling salt to realize this is not just about coming and being with friends. This is not just about getting a good dessert and having a seat and listening to a, to a teaching. This is about the worship of the one true and living God. And Father, while you have brought us together corporately, you are wanting to speak to us individually. And so, Lord, thank you for your concern. Thank you for your, your heart towards us that you would send Jesus to die on the cross and pay the price for our sins that we could be fully forgiven and become children of God, righteous in your sight. And then we also think about not only loving you, but we think about loving others because you first loved us and now we want to love them. And I pray that God, you would be with Brad, just come near to him, draw near to him, strengthen him, Give the doctors, the nurses, what they need in order to understand his condition and treat him accurately. And we just put him in your hands, Lord, and we, we hope to see him some more. We hope to see him back in church on Sunday. And that's, that's a possibility. But Lord, uh, we know that he's had a difficult couple days, so we're asking that you would just come near to him and really strengthen him in his body. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, as we, as we move into chapter 23, hey, we're coming to the end here. Uh, we're, we're almost done, folks. And uh, it's been a good study, hasn't it? It's been a wonderful time of getting in the Word and 2 Kings. I think next week I'll announce where we're going to go after 2 Kings. But... Uh, you know, we don't have much left. What, two or three chapters tops, maybe two chapters. So, so this is coming down to the end. I, uh, I want us to focus in, if we can, tonight on the reforms of Josiah. The reforms of Josiah. Most of what is said in the Bible about Josiah relates to the reforms that, that Josiah brought to Judah. Uh, we learn from the general background of the passage that we're about to read tonight, that there must have been many in Judah who were trying to bring the nation back to God. Uh, we'll learn about some of that tonight. 
But reading this chapter makes me begin to think about our nation. You can't read this chapter and see how far Israel had fallen away from God in their sinfulness. And then to hear about the reform that the king is bringing over his kingdom and just wish and hope and pray, God, do the same in our nation. Do the same in America because we too have fallen so far from you. We live in a day when, you know, I, I posted something this morning on, on Facebook uh, er, early in the morning. It was my time with God and came into some scripture and I was reading it and I thought, I think I'll write something here. But came to the passage where I realized that, that uh, there was a day in my lifetime when any words spoken, anything shared on a sexual front would have been shared discreetly. And, and certainly mainstream media would not have focused on that. There was a day when sin was sin. And most Americans saw it as sin. And so it wasn't popular. If you spoke out, it was very unpopular. You were the exception to the general rule of the people, how we thought about sin, sexual sin. That's not the case any longer. Not only is it acceptable, now it is flaunted in every form of media. Now it's flaunted by people on social media, people from who live in your neighborhood, possibly, who are just flaunting sexual, deviant, perversive sin, sins that are totally unnatural, sins that are an, a, a blasphemy in, in the face of God, trying to recreate, trying to come up with their own identity apart from what God created them to be. That is a terrible, grievous sin before the Lord. And interestingly, in this day, not only do we have to hear about it, but if we stand up for the truth of God's Word and say that's sin, and say it lovingly, but say it, the, the world then places us in this category that we are the ones that are evil. We're the ones that are the problem. That's the day we live in. In other words... Sin today is celebrated and demanded that we celebrate it too. Well, I'm sorry. Even in this day, I will not celebrate what is evil, what is perversive, what is uh, just outright sinful. I'm not going to do it. And you shouldn't do it either. It's not cute. It's just not cute when people flaunt sexual sin the way they do. And we shouldn't be laughing. We shouldn't be making jokes about it. It's very serious to God. We're going to see that here in the text. But the question is, so because our nation is in such turmoil and in such a downward spiral, what Charles Spurgeon called a downgrade, um, the question comes up, 
um, sh shouldn't we be praying the same thing, expecting the same thing as a nation today that God did here in chapter 23 with Josiah and the nation of Israel? I'm going to tell you, no. No. It's not the same. There is a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, when God addressed uh, matters of sin, He dealt directly with His plural, people, His nation. Israel was a nation founded by God. They were the least people on the earth, and God chose them as His, as his dearly loved chosen people, and God was working through Israel, listen now, as a nation, not as individuals. Why? Because the nation of Israel was supposed to be a picture of God's sovereign authority. It would point people, other nations, to God by how they obeyed God and how God delivered them, and God did His work through them, it would show other nations they have the one true living God. So God was dealing with, with the nation back then. You can't take Old Testament passages and just automatically move them over to mean the same thing in the New Testament. They weren't written for us first and foremost. They were written to, in a period of time for people to know the importance of obeying God as a nation, okay? And all the way through, you see a nation that God's dealing with. When God made covenant with Abraham, who at that time was Abram, he said, I'm going to create out of you a nation of people, a nation. They'll be my people on this earth. God never said that about the United States of America. This is where we have to really understand the difference between Asking God to move in the hearts of the people of this nation to the point that it would allow our nation to have a, re a renewal, a revival. But if you're asking God to save America, uh, the reality is that's not who Jesus came for. He didn't come to save America any more than he came to save England or any other nation on the earth. He came for the people, for hearts, for souls. And when enough people in a nation turn to God, it can bring reform in that nation. I want that. But the goal is not for God to save America. The goal is for God to save the people who live in America. Because if he can get their heart, then the nation can turn. You see the difference? Back in the Old Testament, you prayed for the nation. You wanted to see it, the nation turn back to God. That's what the book of Judges is all about. They constantly needed the hero to pull them out of their sinfulness and bring them back to God as a nation. We're not in that day. We live in the church age. We live after Jesus has gone to the cross. In the Old Testament, the people had to live by the law, which they could not live by. They couldn't fulfill it. Jesus could, and he did fulfill the law. He's the carry-on of the law. And now we can go boldly into the throne of grace. Why? Because 1 Peter tells us that we are the chosen people of God. We are the chosen nation of God, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Not, nation, not America, but all Christians on the earth, that's a people of God. Does that make sense? It's no longer by nation. It's by hearts that are, have been changed by God. So that's why every tongue and every culture and every nation can have Christians. And they, and they do. There are Christians everywhere. That's your nation in the New Testament. That's who you belong to, those people. You're all children of the one true and living God. So that doesn't mean that we don't pray for God to move in this nation, but it's through saving individual people that we pray. Does that make sense? I want to be clear on that. Now, here's why I took so much time to say this and why I'm trying to clarify it. A lot of Christians in the United States of America, their focus is on national salvation, national uh, religion. We want America to return to God as a nation. That's not God's heart. I'm sorry, it's just not. His heart is for the lost. You say, well, our nation's lost. You're right. But the way to save the nation or to turn the nation is by reaching individual people. So here's what happens. Christians who are pushing this nationalism over evangelism. Here's what it looks like, what I mean by that. Because you're a nationalist as a Christian, there are certain people in this nation that you despise who are going against what you believe our nation should be. And many of those people are in public office. Many of them have served and are serving in the White House. And you despise them for their political view, for their liberal view. Now listen, let me tell you what else is happening. You're also not praying for them that they would be saved. And you're not willing to go to people who have a different view than you and share the gospel with them. Your nationalism trumps, and your patriotism trumps the gospel. Evangelism. I'll only reach out to people that I think that are good people that I like, and I'm going to reach out and share Christ with them. You can't do that. Jesus did not hold back. He went to every kind of person there was and shared the gospel, shared the truth with them, and we're called to do the same. Does that make sense? I just want you to, don't be a nationalist. Be a Christian. First and foremost, when you are cut... If I'm, well, look, in my day, I grew up after, you know, uh, after the war, after the Vietnam, uh, and there was no war. There was a Cold War when I was old enough to serve. And so no, it, well, there wasn't a push for people to serve. So I didn't. I didn't serve in the armed forces. Part of me wishes I had joined the armed force, really, because there's things you learn there that you can't learn out in just general civilian life, like discipline like how to respect authority, like how to organize your life in such a way. You know how many young men who graduated from high school and who were heading nowhere 
real quick, but they went into the armed services and it gave them understanding and purpose and it disciplined them and it prepared them for the rest of their life. I've talked to men who, that's their testimony. If I hadn't gone in the service, I don't know where I'd be. I might not even be alive today. That's how much of an impact it had on me. Well, I wish I had served, honestly, but God had different plans, and I was getting a business degree, and God called me into the ministry, and I'm thankful for that. I don't have any regrets on what happened, but I'll tell you this. Um, I've come to understand if you cut me first and foremost, I bleed Jesus. I don't bleed America first. I bleed Jesus first. Now, some of you are listening to that, and you're right now the hair stand up on the back of your neck. You're like, oh, I can't believe you just said, listen, I'm a patriot. I would serve. I love my country. It bothers me to learn about m Marines who were beat up over on the beach in California by about 40 hoodlums, young men who were doing what they shouldn't have been doing. That bothers me greatly. But I'm just going to tell you, those 40 young men need to hear the gospel just as much as the people that I think are good people that live next door. Does that make sense? Don't let your nationalism get in the way of your evangelism. <laughs> just be careful there. So we've, we've kind of drifted here a little bit, but actually we didn't because this is what I wanted to share with you. But, but God has chosen us in this church age to be his representatives of his love. We're to shine the light of the gospel. That's the calling. Not so that our nation will be a godly nation first. No, so people will be saved first. And then because they're saved in our nation, if enough of them get saved, it will bring revival to our nation. And that's a good thing too. Amen? All right, now let's get started. Any questions, any thoughts before we move on? I don't want to... I don't want anybody misinterpreting what I'm saying. Are we okay? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, I'm going to hear from heaven, I'm going to forgive their sins, I'm going to heal their land. But it's individuals in our day that he's after. He wants individuals to practice that. Yeah. Okay, so as we study this, just know this is a period of time when God is literally, he was wanting the whole nation to turn to him. Okay, now also know the nation did not turn to him and God already told this king and even his father before him and his grandfather before him. He told them, because the nation has turned away from me, I am going to bring judgment against Israel. So that's still going to happen. All the good that we're going to read about from Josiah and from people who were genuine in their hearts in turning from sin and turning back to God, all of that is good and God recognizes it. But it doesn't take away the fact that God has already decided to judge the people. Now I'm going to say to you, I believe that that in the world today, what we're seeing manifest in all these different forms of sexual deviancy and perversion 
is part of God's judgment on the earth already. It, it's, it's a judgment. He's letting you have what you want. He's handing people over to a reprobate mind to do whatever they choose to do. And that's why you have young people standing up and telling you that they don't even, you're no longer male or female. They're something else and all the nonsense. And that's what it is. And I don't say that to be, to try to belittle those people because they have a soul. I want them to come to Christ. I want them to be saved. So I want to share the truth with them for that purpose, not because I'm against them, but because I love them. All right, verse 1, Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. So what happened before this? In the last chapter, the prophetess, Huldah, she's the one who gave the word of the Lord back to the king through his messengers that Israel was going to be judged for their sins. But it would not happen in Josiah's lifetime. Now, a prior king was told the same thing, and he said, that's a good word from the Lord. You know why he said it? Because it wasn't going to happen in his lifetime. He was totally self-centered. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. No, it's not going to happen in my... Okay, good. That's a good word. That's not the way this king reacts. This king's reaction was, it was neither indifferent, it was neither... He was not showing contentment with the word, he immediately goes into the, met, the mode of, I'm going to try and change as many people as I possibly can, that, our, that God might look again at this nation and see them turning, returning to him. So he's hoping, even though he knows the outcome. Okay, so, and the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. Oh, that's interesting. You've got the king doing the reading from the word of God. He's reading from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. I don't know that he read the whole five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, what is it? Thank you. I don't, I don't think that he read all five. I think he turned to portions that talked about the covenant, and that primarily would have been Deuteronomy. Okay? And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book and all the people joined in the covenant. So after Josiah heard the promise of both eventual judgment and the immediate delay of judgment, he gives a very marked response. He decides, I'm going to show genuine desire for repentance, and I'm going to call this people to a genuine repentance before God because we have now understood from the law, from the, from the covenant, that we have broken covenant with God. And God promised judgment. And so he's, he's hoping and he's wanting people to turn back to God while he is king of this kingdom. But he knew also that it wouldn't happen by acting alone. So he summoned all the elders of Judah to join him in a season of genuine repentance. Now, what triggered this repentance? What made it legitimate? Well, Josiah read in their hearing 
all the words of the book. It is the word of God that is referred to as a double-edged sword. He read the book. The book, the Bible, the Old Testament, the law at that time. He read it, and it penetrated the hearts of men. Okay? Hebrews 4.12, you guys know what it says, but do you know verse 13 as well? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from, the, from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. What is the one thing that we should do when we are approached by people who have, these, who have been caught up in sexual immorality? And by the way, I don't care what they say, the LGBTQ, whatever. It doesn't matter what they call themselves, you know, the transgender fluidity and all this stuff that's going on. Listen, it does, none of that matters. It doesn't matter. Let me tell you what it is. Bottom line, simple. Sexual sin. It, it's all coming out of the same category. It's all sexual sin. So when somebody who's involved in any kind, and by the way, that also means fornication and also means adultery. Those are all, all those are sexual sins, right? Right? Are we together on that? So what, what's important is that they hear us quote the Bible. You say, they're going to laugh at me. They're going to call me draconian. They're going to say that I'm a Neanderthal for believing in a book that's so old. It doesn't matter. That doesn't change anything. Quote the Bible. Why? Because your words can't change anybody. But the Word of God, sharper than a double-edged sword. It's like a... Okay? And it can cut down into the, to the spirit, to the joints, and a marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, let me break this down for you. You might want to write it down. The original Greek word translated as living, where it says the Word of God is living, that means to have life or to be alive. The Word of God is alive because God is a living God, and these are His words. So if God is still alive, which He is, He's always existed, right? then His words always exist. They're always alive. The very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, Jesus said in John 6, 6, 63. In the parable of the sower, Jesus compared God's word to seed. Seed like the word is a living organism that when spread and planted in fertile soil produces abundant life. And Jesus also showed in that parable that a lot of the seed falls on deaf ears on hearts that are closed, but you still throw the seed. If anybody has a chance of being saved, it's not because you have this incredible ability to communicate. You just are a silver-tongued orator. No, no. It's because you spoke the Word. The Bible says it is the foolishness of preaching that brings people to God. The world looks at you and says, you fool for preaching that stuff. It's the actual Word of God that you are preaching that does the work in people's lives. And then there's the term active. 
because he said the Word of God is living and active. The word active, we look in Hebrews 4.12, it means effective, powerful, producing or capable of producing an intended result. The Word of God is vibrant, it's dynamic, it's energizing, it's productive. The Bible delivers. The Bible delivers where you and I will fall short. You, you talk to somebody until you're blue in the face, they still don't get it. Just quote the Bible to them. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. None are righteous, no, not one. Just start quoting Scripture. Let the Word of God come alive. It's active. It'll work. The Apostle Paul explained that the Word of God is at work in you who believe. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 So God's Word is powerful not only to give life, but also to deliver warnings and bring judgment and punishment to the disobedient. It's not... Listen to what Jeremiah said. And by the way, Jeremiah lived in the day that this was happening in Israel. Okay? Jeremiah said, is not... This is God through Jeremiah. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? That's what the Word of God does. Somebody says, well, I don't agree with you. And you're able to say, well, it's really not me that you're not agreeing with. I'm just giving you the Word of God. You're not agreeing with God. And you can calmly walk away, and that will stay with them. And the Holy Spirit, the hound of heaven, will go after them. When the Word of God goes out, the Holy Spirit takes that and begins to work in the heart of a person. And I'm telling you, He is the hound dog of heaven. He, that dog can hunt. And people get saved because the Word of God went out. You and I are the ones that must put the Word of God out there. Okay? So, life-generating things happen when God's Word goes forth. It's fully capable of accomplishing its purpose. Turn quickly, Isaiah chapter 55. I'll give you a second to get there. Isaiah 55. And thank you very much for bringing my water, Earlene. I sure appreciate that. I love what our ladies do for us every week. The food that they provide and the refreshment, you know, and the, the, the coffee. and the, It's just a blessing. We're, we're a blessed church, aren't we? Don't ever take them for granted. Always go up and thank them for what they do. Let's show appreciation for everybody, for what everyone does, right? Let's be an appreciative church. Okay, Isaiah 55, look at verse 10. I love this. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which, who purposes? God, not me. I don't use the word for my purposes. I use the word for God's purposes. It will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. Now, do you believe that? That when God puts the word out there, God has a purpose behind it, and his purpose will come to pass. Amen? Amen. 
You can pray for somebody in your family or a friend or a work associate for 30 years and think that they still are hardened against God. Don't ever stop praying. God's always at work for His purposes. Amen? Let me tell you when you stop praying. When you're not alive to pray. You're no longer breathing. Now you can stop praying. Okay, now you just start worshiping because you'll be in heaven. But until that day, you keep right on because the Word is active. The Word is life. It'll quicken hearts. I only wish I could have been present that day when Josiah grabbed hold of the Word of God, the book, and he started reading it at the temple for the people and especially for his leaders, but also the people. Can you imagine how, what kind of passion must have been in his voice and in his body language as he shared this powerful passage about covenant relationship with God? I mean, he is deeply moved himself to return to God. So when he's sharing all this, can you imagine? That would have been one great sermon. Amen? Verse 3, And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep His commandments and His testimonies and His statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. So he stood before the people publicly declaring his commitment to obey God and obey God's word to the very best of his ability. And verse 3, last part, sentence in, the, in verse 3, And all the people joined in the covenant. Now remember, this is not a command that God's given. God didn't command them to, to join. God's already decided to bring judgment. This is a king, and he didn't make a decree. He didn't command that they join. He just told them, I'm doing it. I'm committed. I'm turning my life around. God's going to get first place in my life, in my heart. I'm going to live for him, and everything I do is going to be for his glory. He just simply told the people. The people of their own volition chose to, to join him in that covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priest of the second order, and the keepers of the threshold, to bring out the temple of the Lord, all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven. Now he does make a command. He says, I, I want the priest to go in the temple and grab all the idol worship objects that are in there, because his father, Ammon, had set them up. And his grandfather, uh, for a period of time in his life, had set them up, but he took them down, thank the Lord. But they're back up. Ammon put them all back in there. And we're talking the temple of God is filled with idols for idol worship, and he's not going to have any of it. And look what it says. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem, those who uh, burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of heavens. By the way, that is inferring uh, astrology, people that worship the stars. They worship the signs, the 12 signs. They're worshiping that stuff. 
And that stuff was in the temple. All this nonsense. And so they bring all of it out. But not just the objects. It's one thing to remove the objects because you're returning to God. That's not enough. To return to God, you've got to remove the people that led you in the wrong direction. If you just remove the objects in your life and say, I'm, I'm coming back to God, well, that's great. But if you don't look closely at the friendships that led you into the sin to begin with and, and change those relationships, you could likely fall right back into it. So he didn't just remove these, these idle objects. He removed the priests that were appointed by his father to carry out these idol worship, uh, the idol worship. He removed them. Uh, what a reform, huh, that this king is bringing. I would love to see something like that in our nation. Somebody who loves God more than he, than he loves man and loves God more than he loves himself to be in the White House and clean house. I would love that. But I also want those people that he's removing to hear the gospel. If they reject it, that's on them, and God will deal with them. But it's on me to share the gospel with them, to pray for them that, they would, that their eyes would be opened and they would turn to the one true living God. That's on us, church. See, we'll go halfway with that. Get them out of there. I got, I got amens on that. I didn't hear any amens when I said we need to pray for them. There you go. Good. <laughs> okay. Verse 6, And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. That's interesting. Let's, let's break that down. So throwing the ashes of the idol on the graves of the common people outside the city, it wasn't intended to defile those graves of common people. The opposite is true. Any contact with death believed to be, was believed to be an act of defilement. People were going out and they thought they were able to speak with those who had died. By putting, by, by putting the ashes over the graves, people stopped going out and praying to the dead, which they, were not, they weren't really praying to the person they thought they were praying to, even if they heard the voice, even if the, the, whatever it was that they talked to gave them personal, private, intimate information about that person that had died. It was a demon. It's all demonic. And so now that was another way to stop them from, from praying to the dead, okay? Scatter the dust over the graves to, show, to defile the idols. Verse 7, and he broke down the house or houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord. Male prostitutes in the temple of God, where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. So supposedly sacred prostitution was an integral part of idol worship for many of these idols. The temple had become a brothel. And Josiah said, that's going to stop now. 
His father is the one that set that up. That's perversion. That is blasphemy. One commentary said, quote, the word translated hangings. So when it says that where the women wove hangings for the Asherah, hangings likely refers to a fabric woven by idol worshipers for curtains behind which the ritual obscenities were practiced. In the temple, perversion sin, sexual sin going on. Verse 8, and he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. And he defiled... Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. Okay, let's, let's try to make sense out of this. Okay, so there were priests who conducted the services, these idol worship services. They did not, some of these did not conduct them in Jerusalem. They conducted them on the high places. So he gathers all of them, the ones in the temple and the ones at the high places. This, this tofeth is actually a drum or an instrument, okay? And it was kept at Hinnom, which another name for Hinnom, Gehenna, Gehenna which was located in the valley outside one of the gates going into the city. And it was where people would take their garbage, their refuse, and they would burn it. It was the dump. But uh, the fires there burned constantly. They never let the fire go out. There was always fire, there was always smoke, there was always stench coming from that location. The people took that, borrowed it from what the Scripture talked about, that in hell, there's an everlasting fire. It never goes out. They called it Gehenna, which is hell. Now, the real, the ultimate hell is not that location. The real Gehenna is a lake of fire that God is holding right now. It exists. And He will throw every single demonic spirit and Satan and every unrepentant soul that's ever lived. They will go to Gehenna together. Could you imagine doing good things on the earth, having a good reputation in your community, being a benefactor or a beneficiary, doing all these wonderful things, and in the end, for all eternity, you are in a place of continual torment, fire, burning, stench, and guess who your neighbor is? Satan himself. That's the truth. So this place that had a continual fire... That's where the people would gather to offer their children to the false god Molech. 
going back to Tophath now. I'm trying to get back to it. It says that he, he, he destroyed Tophath, this drum or this instrument. Why? It was used. It just breaks my heart to think about it. They would bang on that thing or blow on it, whatever it was that caused it to be an instrument to make noise, a loud noise. They did it to silence the cries of the children who were in terror about to be thrown into the fire offered up to Molech. People didn't want to hear the terror, the cries of the people. So they used this drum or this instrument to, to drown out the sound. That is how far God's people had fallen. So Josiah goes and he defiles that place so that no longer can you offer up to a false god living sacrifices. Verse 11, he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the chamberlain, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. You know, they had all these horses and chariots named after celestial planets and things, worshiping the planets. Ridiculous. And the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, he pulled down and broke in pieces and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. Now, let me just say this. Uh, Manasseh repented of his sin. Remember that? And he took out all these things out of the temple. Manasseh did. But his son did nothing but evil in the sight of the Lord, Ammon, and he put him back in. Now think about this. Your grandfather used to be wicked, and he built these things, but then God changed his heart. He changed. But your own father was so wicked, so corrupt, that he put these idle uh, possessions back in the temple. You, listen, think about this. Your parent, your grandparent, both were evil, and now you are destroying their evil practices. And you know how hard that would be? To go against your father and your grandfather? But he was so get Look, he loved God more than he loved his own family. By the way, that's a good thing. The fear that grips so many parents when their child does evil or turns to evil, who follow after some of these modern post-Christian cultural nuances, and they get caught up in it. And I see parents who almost turn a blind eye to it because of the love they have for their child. God would never ask you to stop loving your child, but he would, he would ask you to love him more and to make sure your child knows that what they are doing is evil and not sign off on it and not wink at it and not turn them into your little pet that you protect 
from other Christians. Evil is evil. You got to say it. You got to speak the word to your kids. You got to speak the word to your friends who have gotten caught up in evil. That's what, listen to what Josiah is doing. He is, he is going in a completely different direction than his own father. He's not making excuse for the way his dad was. He's saying, when my father was a boy, my grandfather Manasseh was evil. So that's what my father learned. Therefore, that's why he did what he... doesn't matter. It's evil. Love God more than that. Do what's right in the eyes of God. It doesn't say that he, that he spoke against his dad in a way that showed disrespect from a son to a father. It just says, I'm not going to tolerate the things my dad did. So my dad was wrong. And we're going to remove him. Amen? And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem, verse 13, to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon the king of Israel had built for Ashtaroth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and filled their places with the bones of men. Now, now he's going back like 350 years, 300 years, and the abominations that were set up by Solomon. Wow. And he's saying, uh-uh, we're not going to have that anymore. All the other kings, including Hezekiah, who was a good king, including Manasseh, who became a good king, they didn't take those things out. There was a limit to their reform. No limit with this guy. He's not playing. Josiah means business. I like Josiah. He's my kind of guy. We need about 20 Josiahs in our community. 20 Josiahs could turn this whole town around, getting people saved. Amen? So, you know, the point is the idolatry in Judah was so widespread, so elaborate, so heavily invested in that centuries, the Israelites did evil for, for centuries. Think about that. Now, verse 15, Moreover, the altar of Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. That altar with the high places he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed, who had predicted these things. Then he said, What is that monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, It is the tomb of the man of God, who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he said, let him be, let no man move his bones. So they let the bones, left his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all the shrines, also all the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord to anger. And he did to them according to all that he had done at Bethel and he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. 
So Josiah was diligent in his reforms. He took down the altars located in the former kingdom of Israel. He removed the pagan altar at Bethel that Jeroboam, Jeroboam had set up hundreds of years earlier. And by the way, uh, this region was now under the control of the Assyrian Empire, that area outside of Jerusalem. He didn't care. He went into that region and he took care of business for God. And you say, well, that's foolish. No, it wasn't. He was doing God's work and God protected him in doing that work. Uh, geopolitically speaking, uh, the Assyrians were so weakened and had, having to fight against the Egyptians and against uh, the Babylonians that they didn't respond and do anything about what, uh, Josiah coming into the land. Well, just, but all that plays into God's hand. Verse 21, And the king commanded all the people, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in this book of the covenant. He goes back and he reads the covenant, and these people have never even heard of Passover. Can you imagine the Israelites not knowing what the Passover is? Listen now, the last time that they talked about Passover was in the book of Judges. That's 400 years ago. Oh, no, that's close to 500 years ago, almost 500 years earlier. That's how long, that's how far they drifted from God. They didn't even understand Passover. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Wow, I love that. They had neglected the Passover so much, and they never even knew they were neglecting it. They, they didn't even know it existed. And he goes and finds what the book of the, of the law says, and he says, we're restoring that. We're going to do it. And that's exactly what they did. That would be like in our day, being so far from God as a people that we don't even remember or know what the Lord's Supper means. What it means to take the Lord's Supper. Could you imagine? Or what it means to baptize into the body of Christ. That's the equivalent here, okay? So verse 24, more, moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Now notice, he's dealing with the objects of false worship. He's dealing with the leaders of those forms of false worship. What he cannot do is force people in their heart to return to God. So he's doing external reform to the nth degree. Awesome. That doesn't mean people on the inside have changed. And they didn't. And God knew they wouldn't. That's why God has already said, I'm going to judge them. And that judgment is going to happen just a few years after Josiah dies. It's, it's, like, it's like on them even while Josiah is bringing all these reforms. See, that's the difference. In our day, God speaks to hearts, the people, individuals. You could grow up in an atheist family, and God opened the door for you to be saved. You, the light comes on, and you get it, and you're saved. Isn't that awesome? 
in that day, he's trying to save a nation, Josiah is. And God's saying, no, I've already judged the whole nation. In our day, it's individuals. And some of us, the beauty is, in that day, it's if I, then you. There's a covenant, a contract. God says, I'll do this if you do this, right? In our day, it's mercy and grace because every one of us have done evil. And God still, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Mercy and grace, it's in full swing right now. That's another reason for us to share the gospel with people that are lost. Even those who are the worst sinners that you can think of, share the gospel. You just don't know. When the mercy and the grace of God kicks in and He calls them to salvation. I love this. Uh, so they established the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. He's going to let the Word do its work, and the Word did a work, let me tell you. Some people were genuine in their, in their repentance, but many were not. Before, verse 25, before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. That puts Josiah in some rare air. Amen? That's interesting. One of the most remarkable kings of Judah, unique in his strength of his obedience and commitment. He stands as an incredible example of what a leader can and should be. Josiah. There are other great kings of Judah and in the kingdom before it was divided, okay? Guys like David and Hezekiah. But one thing that made Josiah unique was his godliness. He lived it. David did not. David fell into sin constantly. He was falling back. He was, he was just getting caught up. How many wives did David have? How many concubines did David have? Okay, that didn't happen in one day. That's over a long span of time. Not, not Josiah. Josiah was faithful. One commentary said this quote. Listen to this. I love this. He said, David was a greater, was David was a greater but not a better man than Josiah. He was a greater man than Josiah. He is the celebrated king of Israel. I mean, even to this day, Orthodox, Orthodox Jews will tell you David was the greatest king of Israel. But he's not the better king of Israel. Josiah is. Uh, verse 26, Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of His great wrath by which His anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said my name shall be there. So the prophet Jeremiah said this in Jeremiah 3.10, Yet for all this her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense declares the Lord. So she acted like she was changed, but she in her heart did not change. And Josiah knew it. 
because Huldah, the, pre, the prophetess, told him. Verse 28, Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are, not, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his day, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria, to the river of Euphrates, and King Josiah went to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho, or Necho, killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. And his servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb. So that was part of the geopolitical struggle between the declining Assyrian Empire and the emerging Babylonian Empire. But there's also the Egyptians that come into the scene, and they're the ones that took out Josiah. Second Chronicles 35.20 gives us more information. Pharaoh warned Josiah against battling him. He says, What have I to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come up against you this day. Josiah stubbornly refused to hear this warning and disguised himself in battle, yet he was still shot by archers and died. This was a sad end to one of the great kings of Judah. So uh, he, he probably thought, I hear you saying that you didn't come after us, you're trying to get to the Assyrians or the Babylonians, but once you take them, you will turn on us. So maybe Josiah was thinking ahead, and he thought, we better take him out now. Okay, well, he didn't. Verse 30, and the people of, and by the way, God didn't hold that against Josiah. So I don't know that Josiah did anything that was evil in the sight of the Lord in that, in that measure. It might have just been God said, this is how you're going to die. And he did. And the people of the land took Jehoaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's place. Je Jehoaz uh, was not the eldest son of Josiah. He was actually third in line, but he was the popular one. The people chose him over the first two. And when the people get what they want, trouble is ahead, and that's what happens. Verse 31, Jehoaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned, regained, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Three months. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. And Pharaoh Necho put him in bonds at Riblah in the, hand, in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem, and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and talents of gold. And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah his father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoaz away, and he came to Egypt and died there. So that guy didn't last. That didn't work. Instead of getting God's choice, they got their own choice. That lasted three days. Um, or three years, rather. Now, the reforms of Josiah, as wonderful as they were, they began to turn back to the old ways. Um, it's interesting that in Matthew chapter 1, when you look at uh, the lineage that leads to Jesus Christ, that king is not mentioned at all. God does not even mention him. He leaves him out. <laughs> That's really kind of interesting. Okay? And, and then last, and Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give the money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold of the people of the land from everyone according to his assessment to give it to Pharaoh Necho. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebedah, uh, and the daughter of Pedidiah of Rumah. 
and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. So uh, he's nothing more than a puppet king to the king of Egypt or the, the, the Pharaoh uh, in Egypt. And, and Egypt imposes this extremely heavy tax on Judah. Uh, Jeremiah 36, 22 through 24 describes the great ungodliness of Jehoiakim how he burned a scroll of God's word. Can you imagine that? His father lifted up the scroll. He burned it. So that shows you how quickly things go south again. And by the way, if we see revival hit somewhere in pockets in our country, that's wonderful. We should rejoice over that because souls get saved usually at a revival even though revival is primarily for the believer who has drifted and come back. That's why you're revived. If you've never been saved, you can't be revived because you were never vibed to begin with. <laughs> but souls do get saved at revival. But here's the thing. Ultimately, it's not like sin's going to get better. It's going to get worse, folks, and God is coming again. And Jesus, the next time He comes, is not coming as a little pauper, a little you know, boy, a baby in a manger, and he's not coming with mercy. He's coming with judgment. Why? Because the world has gotten so bad. And, and man, in his, in his arrogance and haughtiness, thinks he can take on Jesus and kill Jesus. <laughs> How ridiculous. So it's going to get worse, folks. That's why we ought to be sharing the gospel. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the life that we have in Christ because of the truth of the gospel, the truth of the Word of God. We give you glory and honor and praise, and we pray that you would use us as salt and light this week, tomorrow, as we go out into a fallen world and share the light of Christ. Amen. God bless you.